This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, a clinical psychologist. I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I've been bringing Self Work to you for more than four years now with three groups of people in mind. Those of you who might already be very comfortable with emotional and psychological issues, maybe you're in therapy, to those of you who might have just been diagnosed with depression, anxiety, or some other kind of psychological disorder, or maybe you have a relationship problem you're struggling with, but to a third group as well. To those of you who might never darken the door of a therapist or you don't think you would, but you're just curious enough to listen to self-work. I'm so glad all of you are here in this 215th episode of Self-Work. Today's podcast is one that if you've been listening to Self-Work for a while, you know that this topic has been my own personal passion, as it's closely aligned with my work on perfectly hidden depression. It's that need to be constantly in control, not necessarily in the way that those that suffer from OCD or GAD, that's generalized anxiety disorder, have to be, but those that believe either consciously or live out unconsciously that feeling and striving for ultimate control is the only way you can stay safe, where you can achieve. Your control over your life is your best friend. It's what you turn to when things get stressful. And yet, quickly, when the pressure to exceed the expectations of others and yourself rule your life, then you can't let anyone in to see your struggle, and you stay silent. The most imminent danger is suicide because you can't handle the pressure and loneliness and despair any longer. So today in this episode sponsored by BetterHelp, we'll talk about 10 fears that you face when you choose to give up or ease out of, or however you want to say it, looking and being in total control. The listener email today comes from a graduate psychology student who's experiencing greater and greater insecurity as the end of her training approaches. She wants to know if I felt the same way and what recommendations I could make. How do you bolster your self-confidence when you can't measure the success of your efforts is her specific question about being a therapist. So sit back, relax, or do whatever you do when you're listening to self-work. Thank you so much for being here. We'll talk about staying in control or actually facing the fears when you decide maybe you can let go just a little. Being in control. This phrase has a sense of power or certainty. And especially being in control of your emotions has long been the premise upon which many parents have taught their children to achieve. Last week's podcast was on emotional intelligence and managing your emotions. Now, that's a skill for sure. But not allowing feelings in, especially not more painful feelings, that's why perfectionism has been rising at such great rates worldwide. Brene Brown, the eminent researcher and author of multiple books on perfectionism and vulnerability and shame, check out her Netflix presentation, by the way, it's stunning. She's quoted as saying, It's not that we're afraid, it's how we self-protect when we are afraid that gets in the way of being courageous. And those forms of armor range from perfectionism, cynicism, having to be the knower and be right, versus being the learner and getting it right. So being in control is self-protection. It keeps all the fears we're going to talk about today in the distance, or you can convince yourself that that's what it's doing. So we're going to focus on 10 fears that will be waiting for you, 
and I certainly hope when you choose to risk looking out of control. Why this is important? Well, think of a coach, any kind of coach, planning a strategy to face the opposing team. When you recognize what the threats are, you can at least try to plan out a strategy to address them one by one. It can help to predict what you might face, so we'll identify those fears. Here's number one. A major one is just the fear of vulnerability. How is vulnerability defined? The quality or state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed, either physically or emotionally. That's the Webster definition. So basically, the fear of vulnerability is like imagining taking off your armor in the middle of some battle, be it a battle at work or at home in relationships or with yourself. It's choosing exposure. But I've learned that courage isn't not being afraid. It's being afraid, feeling exposed, and keeping on going. As a therapist, I've watched many people risk connecting with their emotional vulnerability for the very first time. They're incredulous that it can mean so much to take off their armor very slowly, to allow themselves to feel something that they may have believed would overtake or overwhelm them if they tried. It's truly an incredible experience. In fact, in episode 204, Lewis Howes talked about when he opened up finally about his sexual abuse. You might want to listen to that. You do have to choose to be vulnerable with people you trust, and sometimes you're not quite sure, so you need to choose carefully. But it's important to risk. Here's number two, the fear of uncertainty or unpredictability. I found this quote in an article in Psychology Today by Elliot Cohen. He says, Existentialists refer to this state of letting go as confronting your angst. It is about accepting responsibility, not for the future, but for the choices you freely make about the future. What is in your power? You have the power to say, I won't fear the future. You have the power to say, I won't resign myself to living a life of fear. You always have the power to say no more to such a life. Somehow, you can choose to sink into the reality that there's no way to know what will happen in the future. There are predictor models out there that can help you gauge the rationality of your choices and what that might most probably lead to, but there are too many things you can't control. This awareness of uncertainty has been one of the major things my patients and myself have had to deal with during this pandemic. You had life planned out. Next month was your mom's birthday and you had plans. This is the year you'd save for travel on that dream vacation or you're going to set up a new career or buy a house or finally get your taxes paid off, whatever. And now, we all have to cope on diverse levels with tremendous uncertainty. My answer is to try to stay in the present and recognize that I'm far more likely to miss the opportunities of today if I'm busy stoking my fear of the future. These two fears of vulnerability and of uncertainty were the two that immediately came to mind. But then I remembered my own hands-on work with those that have come to me to work on their perfectly hidden depression So here are eight others that are a little more surprising. Number three is your fear of facing the past, where you learned you needed to stay in control. Many times you learn to stay in this state of emotional detachment out of necessity, and you can definitely be afraid of opening that can of worms. And yet that past that you're afraid of holds answers to the very questions you have about why you're doing today what you're doing. I talked to someone just last week, this is an example of this, who'd been severely physically abused by his father, mostly during warmer months, because there were more chores to do on the farm and more opportunity for his father to scream at him and put him in chokeholds or kick him off the porch. 
He didn't understand why his particular version of seasonal affective disorder occurred during the summer, because it's more classic for it to occur during the winter. Then he heard me say, well, of course, in the winter you weren't trapped, because his father often left in the winter to do a second job, so he was free. I could hear him getting emotionally choked up to simply make that connection with his past. All of a sudden, it made sense. Your past holds a lot of answers, and if you can risk and explore that past, you have the chance to free yourself from it. Here's number four. Fear of your anger exploding as it's been long suppressed. I get this. I remember asking my therapist one time how long I'd be angry, although I'd truly never exploded. Anger, when you're not accustomed to working through it, can bring a lot of fear. This fear demands that your work go slowly and carefully, as you don't want to cause more chaos by beginning to feel your anger too quickly. I'm a fan of the show This Is Us, and watched most recently where the character Randall Pearson releases all the pent-up feelings he had about the way his mother had had to live, and just how much he missed from not knowing her. There were tears in my eyes as I watched him wade into the same pond that she had as a child when she was most overwhelmed. As his emotions roared out of him, they were palpable even over the TV screen. You can say that's good acting by Sterling K. Brown, and it was, but I've watched similar releases of these complex emotions, and that can cause some fear. It's understandable. So again, you have to find a safe space to do that in. Here's number five, the fear of not being able to forgive yourself. Perfectionists don't face their perceived mistakes very well, although they have massive but well-hidden shame about them. I've heard many stories that hold within them this shame. I didn't ever claim that I was the father of that child. I never was a part of his life. Or I knew that I'd only married the man I did because he left me alone and I couldn't stand any kind of intimacy. It was a perfect storm of a marriage. I eventually grew lonely and had an affair that I justified. But I've never let myself think about that. Again, a fear of not being able to forgive yourself. Learning to take responsibility but not carry shame around with you is so important. And if you stop looking so much in control and keeping all these feelings suppressed, the memories or experiences you've carried in shame will be waiting for you and you'll need to develop compassion for yourself. Before we go further, I want to convey a very special message to you from BetterHelp and myself about what they can offer you in therapy. And if self-work is helping you, perhaps BetterHelp can too. BetterHelp has now been a sponsor of self-work for a few months, and I've been hearing how pleased you are with their services. I couldn't be more excited about that, as by now you know I'm a huge believer myself in the power of therapy. What is BetterHelp? It's an online therapy service that has earned the number one ranking for the quality of their service to their consumers. When you contact them, you are offered several different licensed professional therapists to choose from, all that have been vetted by BetterHelp. You can have sessions via video, text, or phone. And I found, because of course I checked it out before recommending it to you, that each therapist was very available, literally a text away, and made some of the same therapeutic suggestions to me that I'd offer myself as a therapist. Here's an excerpt from a listener who wrote in, I'm a 23-year-old living in Brazil. I'm only writing this message in order to express my gratitude towards you and your podcast. Having anxiety disorder, I always felt like I needed therapy, but I was too anxious to start it. 
with self-work, not only I've learned some valuable insights about dealing with my condition, but also the basics of how therapy sessions work, which allowed me to finally get some courage to start it. With the coronavirus pandemic, I'd also been concerned about attending personal sessions, but then I learned about better help in your podcast, and it sounded just perfect for what I needed. I've been getting online counseling from BetterHelp for six weeks now, and I feel like it's been helping me a lot. That's just so wonderful to hear. And now, BetterHelp has a special offer for you. 10% off the first month of sessions if you use this link. Trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork. That's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork. I'm never more honored than hearing someone sought therapy after listening to selfwork. And if selfwork is helping you, Maybe better help is your next step. Number six is one I so wish I'd included specifically in the book. It's the fear of there being no other way to succeed. This has been the topic of several of my sessions with black women who come to me with perfectionism and needing to look in control, being at the core of their issues. And yet I recognize that what their experience has been is based on harsh reality. They'll say to me, if I hadn't been perfect looking, I'd never have gotten the chance. If I wasn't better than any other person in the room, I might not even have been noticed. No matter what minority you might be, LGBTQ, Asian, black, brown, a woman, to have achieved, you've likely counted on your perfectionism and of never admitting a struggle or even conflict to govern your choices. What I've learned from these clients is that the change to being more vulnerable is really tough. And I get it as much as I can. I don't really have a quick answer here, but I've watched them as they've made inroads into risking more, making statements and choices that reveal more of who they are publicly. It takes a lot of courage, as well as a recognition that the cost of that kind of success can be a tremendous depression that's underneath all that success. This leads us to the next fear. Number seven is the fear of rejection. This was so true for so many that I've talked to through the years, and I quote, If I let on that I'm not who they've perceived me to be or who I've even led them to believe I am, then I'll lose everything, maybe even my job. Hopefully you can hear the catastrophizing. The world will fall apart if I don't keep hiding is what they tell themselves. Yet the reality is that your world isn't built on a solid foundation and is much shakier than anyone but you knows it to be. So what's worse? Maybe having to rebuild some? To be rejected by some and then have to rebuild? That, of course, could happen, but it also means that you've got a chance to build something truly stable. It's likely that not as much will change as you fear. I remember a patient of mine, he was a guy, who worked at a highly competitive corporate job. He ruled his team with the same perfectionism that he used for himself. After treatment, he asked his supervisor if he could take some leadership training, which he did. And what happened? Instead of people asking to get off his team, he had people asking to join. He'd gone from expecting perfectionism to learning how to grow the potential of every member of his group. He allowed some of his own vulnerabilities to show, which only made him more approachable to others. He was amazed at this change and thrilled, as was I. Number eight is something we touched on in the recent episode on people-pleasing, the fear of not being needed, staying in control so you're indispensable. This is certainly tied into a fear of rejection, but takes a bit of a turn. The staying in control looks like never or rarely saying no when you're asked to do something. Your decision or your impulse can be fueled by the fear that you'll be replaced, 
that if you don't show up and do your duty or take your responsibility, that others will be disappointed. And you fear risking that to the point that you almost martyr yourself. Again, this fear can be worked through slowly as you learn to say no when it's important for you to do so and for you to allow your own needs to be your first priority, at least some of the time. That's not selfishness. That's self-awareness. The ninth fear is something that Dr. Brown stated, the fear of being wrong. So many fights between partners have to do with this fear as if being wrong or making a mistake defines you immediately as being stupid or inept. So this couple will fight to the finish just to prove themselves right to the ultimate detriment of their partnership. But why does a perfectionist or someone who likes control fear being wrong? I think it could be tied in with the perception that they'll lose power or control if they look as if they're confused or puzzled or flat don't know what to do. In the book, I do give some direct things to try here, like at the end of a committee meeting where you're the chair, of course. (laughs) Ask others for their input about what should happen next. Take a less powerful position on purpose. Try it out for size. It could be an eye-opener. You can obviously do this in your partnership as well. You simply say, I'm not real sure what happened, or I can't remember, or whatever it is. You take a less powerful position. And here's the last fear, but maybe one of the most potent. It's the fear of true intimacy. I'm not only talking about sexual intimacy, although that could very well be a factor as well. If you struggle with vulnerability, then certainly your sexual life will be heavily impacted. Sharing intimacy or a sense of, you see me at my most vulnerable, can be such a strong bond in a couple when it's treated with respect and caring, and it has great potential to build a kind of trust you won't find anywhere else. But emotional intimacy, allowing someone else to truly get to know all of you, can max out every one of the fears already mentioned. Fear of rejection especially, or being hurt. Perhaps this fear of intimacy could actually be termed a fear of trust. With trauma or a hurtful childhood in your history, you may not have ever experienced anyone as a child that you could truly trust, that showed up when they said they were going to, that remembered details of things you told them, who thought about you when they hadn't seen you for a while and let you know they were thinking about you. Trust is not built easily, but it can be built. You can let the person you're trying to trust in on the fact that you're going to risk that trust and ask them to give you the time to do just that. A healthy person will understand. Someone who's not so healthy might become angry as if your feelings of struggling with trust have to do with them as a person. (laughs) That's actually a good litmus test of who lives up to trust and who doesn't. Obviously, a healthy therapeutic relationship in this case can be a huge stepping stone to developing trust. So the first one is fear of vulnerability. Number two, fear of uncertainty. Three is fear of facing the past. Four, fear of your anger exploding. Number five is the fear of not being able to forgive yourself. Number six is the fear of there being no other way to succeed. Number seven, the fear of rejection. Number eight, the fear of not being needed. Number nine, the fear of being wrong. And the last, the fear of intimacy or trust. If these are your fears, I hope you'll risk when you're ready and with someone you can truly trust. (laughs) 
Our listener email today is from a graduate student. She said, I just received my MSW, that's a Master of Social Work, and have my preliminary licensure. I'm a practicing clinician at a wonderful practice with fantastic clinicians, but I find that the more I practice, the less confident I'm becoming. I become so shaken I'm even considered quitting. There are three things keeping me from doing this, though. The beyond amazing director of the practice, whom I've really connected with and don't want to disappoint, my general disdain for quitting, and this little voice in my head reminding that most new things are really hard at first, and I need to just get over the initial hurdle and be prepared for the future ones. I realize I'm struggling with the lack of clear ways to succeed. I tend to be introspective in general, but with this I realize my severe feelings of inadequacy are what's keeping me from moving forward. What are your thoughts on this? How did you feel when you first began practicing? Did you have similar thoughts and feelings? I wrote her back and said, could you outline your more specific fears? And this is what she says. With other professions, there exists concrete evidence that I was successful. I'm missing that as a counselor. No matter how many times my supervisor says she doesn't think I'm a bad clinician, I think she's just saying that to be nice. A good example is when clients decide to terminate. I know intellectually there are a ton of reasons why and not to take it personally, but it feels like a huge failure for me each time. Well, this took me back to my graduate school days for sure. I can remember my last year, all my colleagues were developing and deciding that they were cognitive behavioral therapists or they were emotionally focused therapists or they were object relations therapists. Basically, their work was going to be defined by a certain theory. And I went to my supervisor and said, gosh, you know, I tend to see people's strengths and then try to work with them on their strengths and then talk with them about, you know, their vulnerabilities, but not really using one theory. And my supervisor laughed. She goes, Margaret, it's just a theory. So that kind of questioning of, am I doing this the right way? Am I good at what I'm doing? Can be really, really strong. And she's right. There's a lot of therapy that's about art. It's creating a relationship with people where you are providing a safe, secure, almost a container for their experiences, their memories, their emotions. And you are both using psychoeducation and teaching them about ego skills or teaching them about skills they could use. You're helping them understand a potential diagnosis while you're also dealing with developing that trusting relationship. It's a complicated job. And I will share with you that my first job as a therapist right outside of graduate school, I was fired from. I was told that I could not maintain relationships with patients, and that's why they were terminating. I happened to know that I was terminated because I really wasn't allowing them to control me as much as they wanted to control me, and I'd been looking for another job, but it still stung like heck. And I can remember coming to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and beginning to practice here. All that happened in Dallas. And years after I was in a successful practice and had established that, I doubted my ability to maintain those relationships. So those things really sting, and you can have a lot of self-doubt. However, I hear some ways that you are doubting yourself. If your supervisor thought you were not a good clinician, it would behoove her to tell you what was wrong. So you're taking your own doubts and projecting them onto her or projecting this, she's not really telling me the truth, kind of irrational mistake. 
You know, I certainly made other mistakes as a young clinician. I've told the story here that my very first patient in graduate school was a young man who came in talking to me about his relationship with his girlfriend, and he basically described pounding on her door at 2 a.m. and getting her to come outside when it was cold and making her go in the car with him and yelling and being angry with her. And she left and shut her door, and he banged on it some more until the neighbors told him they were going to call the police. That's what I remember about the story. I'm sure there was more. And my supervisor looked at me after I had talked about the case for a while, and she said, so what did you do about the domestic violence? And I just stared at her. Because, you see, I had domestic violence in my own relationship. And I hadn't even heard it as domestic violence. So I remember going to my therapist. I made up some answer for my graduate supervisor. I was so embarrassed. And I remember saying, I've got to wake up. I've got to really figure out what has been going on in my life. Because I've got to change my focus and the way I see things and hear things, which I did. But of course, we therapists have our vulnerabilities. We have our blind spots. And that's why it's important, especially early on, to maybe have a mentor or a supervisor or something that you're still checking in on cases where, you know, you're not really sure about something. I promise you that this same kind of questioning of your status or how well you do something will keep you on your toes. But know that actually it shows integrity that you're questioning yourself so much. You really want to help others and not harm them. Don't turn that integrity into criticism and into not believing in yourself. As a side note, I also asked her to review the episode I did on imposter syndrome. And for those of you who might feel the way she does about starting a new job or being in a job that you feel like you're always going to get found out that you're not really as good as other people think you are, you might review that episode on imposter syndrome. I'll have it in the show notes. Thank you all for being here. Doing this podcast is something that I absolutely love. I got an interesting question on an interview the other day. They said, how has podcasting changed you? And I realized that how it has changed me over the years is that I myself have become more transparent. Spending time producing this and living in the world of words and language has made me more aware of the use of my own language, both as a clinician and as a person. And of course, your emails to me, your reviews both on Amazon and on Apple Podcasts about the book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, or this podcast, Self Work, means so much to me. This podcast is a labor of love, and I offer it to you with the hope that it's helpful in some way. You can reach me in several different ways. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and if you subscribe there, it's a really easy way of keeping up with both this podcast and my weekly blog post. That's all you get, I promise, a weekly newsletter. You can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com, or you can send me a voicemail via SpeakPipe, which you can find on my website or actually in the show notes. I'd love to hear your voice. I'm over on Instagram at drmargaretrutherford. My Facebook professional page is also facebook.com slash drmargaretrutherford, and I have a closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash selfwork. We're about 2,500 strong, very diverse individuals from all over the world, and we're there to support each other in whatever kind of emotional or mental struggle you're having. 
So thank you once again for being here. Please take very good care. This is a very, very difficult time we're in. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.